Hey everybody, welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today we're gonna to be talking practice management. So using a mock exam, we will cover several topics in this division of the ARE. And then after this episode, you'll have a good uh, set of strategies to help you feel comfortable uh, demonstrating your knowledge of the principles that you're gonna to need to know for the exam. Uh, but before we get started, our next ARE Live broadcast, we're gonna be discussing project management with Mr. Mike Newman here. Uh, we will again be using a mock exam, uh, which a lot of you guys seem to like as a format. So we'll continue to do that uh, to cover uh, PJM knowledge and skills relating to topics like resource management, project work planning, uh, etc. Uh, and so you can look forward to that. Um, uh, to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, you know some of the updates to our products, uh, we're very proud that. Uh, uh, where Black Spectacles is the first ever NCARB approved test prep provider for all six divisions of ARE 5.0. Um, and that, of, of course, includes all of our study materials, including the lectures, practice exams, and flashcards. Um, if you're looking for support and structure while studying, um, you can register for our group coaching program. Uh, and actually, registration for the August cohort will be opening on August 9th, so in just, uh, just a week or so. Uh, and what's nice about that is you get uh, a group of uh, you know colleagues who are going through the exam at the same pace that you're going, and you get a coach, a recently licensed coach, and you get access to all of our um, you know NCARB approved uh, test prep materials. And then lastly, as I always like to tell people, if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses. And actually, you can learn more about some of the differences between an individual and a group subscription. Uh, on Thursday, August 8th, um, for our Black Spectacles uh, ARE 5.0 product demonstration. Um, and during that webinar, one of our account executives will walk you through um, sort of the pros and cons of the individual versus the firm or group subscription. Uh, so I just dropped a link to that um, uh, webinar in the registration chat box. So you can uh, look for that. And then today, lastly, you know, we have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships, uh, which we'll share at the end of the show. Uh, since today is a mock exam, we're going to be tracking uh, all of your answers, and everyone who gets all of them right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt, so stay tuned for that. Now my guest, uh, of course, is Mr. Mike Newman. If you don't know Mike, he's a senior lecturer at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio. He just told me about a pretty awesome project that is almost done. Finally. Um, some, uh, uh, some multifamily housing. Uh, which is pretty cool, um, that he did with Shed Studio. Uh, but he's also the instructor for our uh, uh, Black Spectacles Online ARE exam prep. So thank you for joining us today, Mr. Newman. Okay. Um, and I'll let you take it from there. All right. So uh, as Mark said, we're talking practice management uh, today. The next one will be project management. And you'll find that they're very similar. Uh, they're talking about a lot of the same issues. The big difference is that with practice management, it's sort of the questions sort of ebb towards, kind of lean towards the, the overall idea of kind of managing a practice, like how one project is related to another project, uh, how you have insurance and you know all of that kind of stuff, whereas project management is much more sort of diving into the specifics of any one particular project. But today we're going to talk practice management, and I think probably the best thing for us to do is just to get right into it. Uh, so... I'm just going to start running running through these, um, and we'll kind of talk about what the answers are, but then also a little bit of information uh, kind of around uh, these answers. Uh, 
So number one, the contract documents include which of the following? And then we have six different uh, possibilities and we're gonna choose three out of the six. Uh, and the possibilities are the architect's instruments of service, addendas, project manual, shop drawings, submittals, wall sections. And uh, the first thing I wanna talk about is the instruments of service. Uh, before we do that though, I'm just gonna tell you what the answers are. And the answers are B, addendas, uh, C, project manual, and F, wall sections. But let's talk about instruments of service for a second. Um, the architect's instruments of service is essentially all the work that you do that's billable hours. Uh, so it's work that's specifically done for a specific project. So if you can imagine that maybe you do a bunch of, say, admin um, that's outside of a specific project, or maybe a bunch of marketing. Sorry, hurt my finger the other day, and now my, it turns out I can't write. Um, uh, marketing, uh, maybe you're doing some sort of general research that has to do not with a specific project, um, research, uh, uh, but like a sort of a, something you're interested in or teaching or something. Those would all be things that would be outside of the instruments of service. But all of your SD, your schematic design, your design development drawings, all the memos that you did, all the meeting notes you took when you were talking to, let's say you're doing a small corporate interior and you went and interviewed all of the employees to see what uh, furniture needs they had or something, all of those notes. Like those notes aren't going to go directly into the drawings, but they're going to inform your drawings. Those would all be considered part of the instruments of service. So you're gonna have a bunch of stuff that is outside of the realm of, in of instruments of service, which is more your own practice issues. And then you're gonna have a bunch of stuff that is inside the instruments of service, which is gonna be all those notes, sketches you did for a parking lot layout, uh, you know, try and test out different ideas, uh, all of those things. And then eventually you're also going to get not only all those memos and schematic design drawings, and all of that, but you'll get to your actual CD sets, the uh, contract documents, which is going to be your uh, drawing set and your project manual. Um, and so that's a very important subset of the instruments of service. Uh, and within that uh, um, uh, subset, the uh, contract document subset, you're going to have the main drawing set that is the permit and, and bid set. You're going to have uh, the project manual, which is the specification book, which includes all the contracts and the general conditions and all of that. Uh, and interestingly, you're also going to have all the addendas. And the reason that you're going to have the addendas as part of the CD set is because when you do a, a full project, right, you've gone through schematic design, you've gone through design development, now you've, you've got a project, everybody's agreed to what's going to happen, now you're putting together the CD set, uh, you're going to put as much of that information together and reasonably and reliably as you can into that CD set, and you're going to send it out to bid, and there's going to be some mistakes. There's going to be some things that don't make sense. There's going to be some questions that come up. Well, those questions are going to get asked to you, and you don't respond, you never answer the question, uh, you always take the question, build up a bunch of questions, and then you produce an addenda. And that addenda has, here's a question, here's the answer. And then that way, all the bidders get the same document and therefore get the same information. Therefore, your bids will all be apples to apples. 
So interestingly, even though that addenda is produced after the drawings and after the project manual, it becomes part of the contract document set. Uh, and so it then uh, is the total package that the final bids get made on. And so that is all part of that contract documents. Interestingly, uh, if we had had change orders on here, that also would have been part of the contract documents because it's a change to the contract. And so the change order would also become an additional part of the contract documents. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see that there's, uh, there's like all the work you do, then there's a bunch of work uh, that's a subset of that that is not really part of any one project. It's like, you know, organizing the files. It's, uh, you know, making sure your library is up to date, uh, computers are working and all your programs work and you're sending out marketing materials and you're doing all of that kind of stuff, right? That's all important practice work but it's outside of the instruments of service. And then there's all the instruments of service, which is within a specific project, billable time to somebody. But not all of that is actually the contract documents. Only a subset of that is the contract documents. And then that subset sort of grows a little bit during the construction period. So addendas is definitely part of it. The project manual is that book, the specification book, got all that stuff in it. And then wall sections is a bit of a weird, weird one, but it's just one small subset of the overall drawings that you have to do. So instruments of service is a good one to know because that's a question that's, it's an easy question to ask because it's just specific enough that you have to kind of understand this, the, the difference between uh, billable hours, uh, overall work, and contract documents and the instruments of service and how those relate. All right, we're down to 45 people who got this one right. All right. Um, and shop drawings are produced by the contractors and submittals are submitted by the contractors. So. Okay, number two. Your young firm has only, so far, done re residential work, but you have plans to move into the school sector. In responding to an RFP, uh, for an addition to an elementary school in a nearby town, you notice that they specifically ask you for uh, ask you to list your school experience. You should a skip the question, focus on positive areas of your background. B describe your residential work. C find engineering consultants that have experience willing to partner with your firm. And D find appropriate experience first before you apply for this sort of work. Well, uh, a couple of these I can definitely tell you are not the case. One of them would be uh, A. Uh, if they ask you, you got to answer the question. You can't skip the question. Uh, it's good to be positive. That's all great, but you can't skip the question. That's just never going to be a, a possible way of doing it. Uh, if the question is about your school experience, you definitely do not want to spend all your time uh, talking about your residential work. You can sometimes find ways to sort of make things fit and work, like through talking about the technology that you use in your residential work and how that's similar technology to what's being done for school work or something. Like there are ways you can sometimes find those connections, but that's uh, a separate, uh, separate kind of issue. Um, so the first two are definitely not the right answer. Uh, D is a completely appropriate answer uh, if you never actually ever want to really get schoolwork. Uh, because the only way you're ever going to get schoolwork or any other sector is by finding a way to get experience before you have experience. And the sort of smartest, best, most logical way to do that is going to be C, uh, which is find people to partner with that have the experience to get you in the door of the RFP uh, so that the overall team has experience. And then that will then eventually, if you can 
land some of these projects get you the experience that you can then uh, uh, be the ones with the experience. But at first, you have to team with people who already have those uh, that level of experience. Um, so this is kind of a funny question. It's sort of a weird, like, wh how, why is this even on an exam? Uh, it feels a little strange. But the kind of the point of this, I think, um, this is sort of modeled on some NCARB questions that I've seen um, uh, from some of the practice exams. Uh, the, the point of this is that uh, they want you to remember that you're part of a team that you are the one who is sort of corralling and, and putting the team together and getting it all sort of logical and, and it makes sense so that your response to this RFP is going to be a logical response, that you've got uh, sort of a clear vision of how uh, there's no point in doing the work of putting together an RFP if there's not like a reasonable chance that you could get it. And so kind of thinking of it as a strategy, thinking of the overall arc of your uh, career, uh, like what the what the point of the firm's work is and how those things all interact in coming through in something like an RFP and what the team members are and how those can uh, help uh, make that a, a real thing, a positive real thing. Uh, this is, is for practice management, this is a very likely kind of question uh, to get something that's saying, look, uh, you know, we want to build a practice. What's the logical way for us to move forward in building that practice? This is the kind of thing they want you to think about. And, and that idea that you are part of a team and that you are running the team, but that you're not like a standalone entity. You know, you are with your, your consultants, the engineers, lighting consultants, maybe uh, specialty kitchen consultants, whatever it is. Uh, they're all on your team and you want to sort of corral uh, their knowledge, their uh, connections, their ability to uh, sort of uh, have to show experience. You're corralling all of that information uh, to make uh, the whole package look better and more likely to get chosen. And then that will eventually give you the experience that you need. Hopefully that was clear. Yeah, down to 33 here. Okay. Number three. The client wants to build a new and very complicated project, a drone port, the first of its kind. I have no idea what a drone port would be. I'm making it up, but there you go. Uh, floating airport? I don't know. Whatever. Um, uh, that will likely take a fair amount of new research and negotiation with federal authorities to finalize the design requirements. What sort of contract should you suggest to the owner uh, for the owner-architect agreement? And our choices are cost plus fee, lump sum with GMP, fast track, contingency-based contract. Um, so the first one that we can definitely cross off the list is fast track. Uh, so fast track is a project delivery method where uh, the whole point is that speed is of the essence. So you can imagine we got to get the... Uh, addition to the school building done before fall because the kids show up in fall, right? And you got to get it done, right? So more important than it, how much money it costs is the timing. And so the way Fast Track works is you, uh, you design the excavation and foundation system and then you hand it over and they start building it. And then while you're working on the structural skeleton and the shell of the building, uh, you then hand that over and they start building that on the foundation that they just finished. So you're designing and building at exactly the same time, which is, of course, crazy uh, and bound to make mistakes. 
But the whole point is that, yeah, it's bound to make mistakes, but as long as those mistakes cost less than the downside of it taking longer, then it should be worthwhile. So places like uh, stadiums where the teams are going to show up or schools or just like a downtown site that's super expensive to hold the land, something like that, that's when fast track makes sense, but not in a situation like this. Like there's no way to do fast track in a project like this. So it's definitely not C. Uh, and then D, a contingency-based contract, um, I just made that up. Uh, there is no term contingency-based contract, um, but those are words that are real words, and contingency is sort of an interesting one in this context, and it's sort of plausible, but it just doesn't quite really make any sense. So the word contingency is sort of useful in this context, but it's not, it, it's not a thing enough for that to really, really make sense. So it comes down to A and B. Uh, the cost plus uh, fee or the lump sum with the GMP. So let's talk about what those are for a second. So lump sum is exactly what it sounds like. Lump sum just means, all right, we're going to do this project for you uh, for you know a, a $100,000 fee or a million dollar fee or whatever it is. It's like, here's the lump sum. Uh, and a GMP is a guaranteed maximum price. So First of all, it's a little weird to say lump sum with GMP. You should be a little suspect of that one because a lump sum is kind of a GMP already. Uh, GMP is just sort of hammering home that the price isn't going to go up above that lump sum. Um, but uh, the idea there is, all right, so let's say we're looking at a project and we think, yeah, this is going to take uh, you know about X number of hours. We think we're going to be able to do it at uh, X dollars per hour. Uh, so we think we can do this whole project for uh, $250,000 uh, architectural fee. And we're just going to say, that's just the fee. And then the scope changes a little bit, goes up or down, or things drag out, or they get it faster or whatever. It doesn't really matter. We've sort of given ourselves a fee. We're just like, that's just what the fee is going to be. Then certain things could change that, like the scope dramatically changes or uh, they decide, yeah, we want this, but then we also want you to do a bunch of marketing drawings for us or, you know, certain other things could change that number. But effectively, you're just saying, here's the number. You can put it into your pro forma. It's, that's what the number is going to be. It's a very useful way because the uh, owners understand how much money it's going to be. And so they are they're with you. Like they get it, they know what's going on, and they're ready to move forward. So lump sum is a very useful way to go. But in a situation like this, where we've got this very complicated project, nobody's really sure how it's going to play out. If you were putting together the the bid for that, like think about it. Like if you had this thing that was very open-ended, you weren't really sure how it was going to go and really you're gonna put a lump sum number on it, you're probably gonna figure out what you think it's gonna cost, and then you're gonna like double it, because like who knows, right? So you're gonna add a whole bunch of money on in order to just cover yourself in case it takes uh, a lot more hours than you were imagining when you first did it, because it's just not predictable. So uh, the problem with lump sum in a complicated situation like this is it it kind of pushes architects or contractors for that matter, but architects to add more to their fees than is really necessary because they're just not sure. So how could you battle that? Well, the sort of best possible answer in this situation is going to be A, a cost plus fee. It's effectively hourly and the 
concept here, the reason that it's called cost plus fee is that it's not just that you're saying it's X dollars per hour. You're saying, uh, here's all of our costs. So here's our, you know, for the five employees working on it, here's what we pay them. Here's the overhead costs associated with them. Here's the insurance costs associated with them. We line up all of our costs uh, for, the, for the amount of time that we've worked on it, and sort of by hour usually. Um, sometimes it's by day and a couple of other things, but typically it's by hour. Uh, and we line up all those costs. Uh, and then at the end, for each billing period, we then are able to add, with, in this case is referred to as a fee, but it's uh, actually like a small profit that is sort of uh, added onto the, onto the end. So it's our direct costs, and then a, a small bit of profit that we can then say, all right, here's our total plus our little bit of profit. Uh, this is how much time we've spent on this this month. That you know, that's how much you owe us. And the reason that that would be a useful thing to the owners in this case is because uh, in this very complicated thing, they just don't want you just adding, adding, adding money onto that lump sum. Uh, in order to just cover yourself, they want like you're working, you know, uh, a certain number of hours. They're happy to pay you for those hours. They just don't want to pay you for a whole bunch of extra. So this is a perfect spot for a cost plus fee. The other kind of place, kind of interestingly, uh, for a cost plus fee is in the exact opposite, where it's so simple and you've done it a bunch of times with that. Uh, particular owner that you have a system going. Maybe the owner owns a big building with lots of tenant spaces in it. And every time a new tenant comes in, you do their new layout or something like that. And you have just sort of it down to a science and like it really doesn't make sense to put together a proposal each time. They just sort of say, hey, we got a new client. It's 2,000 square feet. Their lawyer's office here, you know, go for it. And you just keep giving them your, your hourly sheets, your cost uh, plus fee uh, information and they, you know, pay it as, as the hourly work gets done. So very simple, repetitive things is very common for cost plus fee, and then quite complicated things. The place where cost plus fee doesn't make any sense is going to be in that middle ground where, like, imagine a situation where you're doing like a house and somebody says, "All right, what's your fee going to be?" And you say, "Oh, well, we're just going to do it hourly. We're just going to keep working until we think it's done," like. Imagine a client signing that contract. That's a little crazy, right? Because you could just work for it. Like you could build millions of dollars on that contract. Uh, so the middle ground where it's sort of no, you should know what your fee should be and you should be able to kind of control it is not really that many questions, but it's a little unusual, right? That's where cost plus fee probably doesn't really make sense because it just doesn't fit to the situation. It's really in these two extremes of very complicated or very repetitive uh, and straightforward. All right, hopefully that makes sense. We're going to move on. Number four, the client for a large tech center office park has decided to go with a multiple prime construction delivery method. One contractor will be responsible for the shell and core of the three phase one uh, of the three phase one buildings. A second contractor will be responsible for the interior lab work, and a third contractor will be responsible for the site design and civil infrastructure. What is the architect's chief concern? Standard of care, instruments of service, regular meetings for quality communication, uh, system of retainage for payouts to cover multi-party complications. Um, D is actually not a bad answer, but that's not the one that uh, that I would go with. Uh, standard of care, uh, you're always concerned about the standard of care. Standard of care is uh, essentially it's what you're um, saying you will do when you sign a contract. 
And the standard of care is, uh, did you do the work uh, in a way that was the same or similar as what other reasonable architects doing this similar kind of project in a similar location, how they would have approached it. And the idea there is like, how would you know whether somebody's done a good job? Like, is it competent or not? Is essentially what the standard of care is. And by signing those contracts, you're saying, yes, we're gonna do a competent job. And we, we are promising you that it will be competent. Um, so standard of care is gonna always be the case. And so it's kind of a background thing and not really appropriate. Uh, instruments of service we already talked about doesn't really apply to this situation. It's that uh, uh, sort of all the work that you do as sort of billable hours. So the answer here is going to be C, which is regular meetings for quality communication. Now that might sound a little like, really? That seems sort of like small potatoes out of all of these different choices. Uh, but think about it. This is multiple prime, right? What that means is there's not one GC, there's not one contractor in charge. There are multiple, what are effectively GCs, but they're separate ones. And so since there's multiples, you can't call them general contractors because there's more than one, there's not a general. Uh, and so there are multiple prime contractors. Well, where exactly is the line between the lab work and the shell and core work? Like it can be a little complicated, right? Like is the drywall part of the lab or is the drywall part of the uh, shell and core? Like, you know, it can go a couple different ways. Is the walkway up to the front door part of the site plan or is that part of the shell and core? Like the idea of where those lines are becomes very complicated. And whenever you're doing a multiple prime, it's going to be about communication. So C is the answer. And I have this one in here specifically uh, because it's a you know, good way to start thinking about other systems other than just design, bid, build, you know, in this case, multiple prime. But also, there's always going to be a pressure on the exam for you to answer things like regular meetings, doing meeting minutes, design logs, things that are sort of the standard core of how you keep control of information uh, and uh, make a project move forward. And especially in something like practice management, kind of understanding how that plays a role in how you put projects together. And 14. All right. Number five, a new corporate office project in the office uh, in the office has an architectural fee of $100,000. To get the project going, the partners have given the project over to Abigail and Juan, each of whom make approximately $25 per hour. How many total hours do Abigail and Juan have to spend on the schematic design portion of the work? Um, so there's a couple of things that you need to know uh, in order to answer this question uh, sort of relatively easily. Uh, first thing is, kind of the typical run uh, of if I have uh, schematic design, design development, CDs, bidding, and then construction administration. Uh, that's typically written out as 15%, 20%, 45%, 5%, and 15%. Now, Various people will do various different numbers than that. And you can see there are all sorts of places all over uh, the Black Spectacles uh, landscape where we've talked about how in the modern age of uh, uh, 3D models is as schematic design 
is kind of messing all this up because people are spending 30, 40% on the schematic design of their time, of their available fee on the schematic design. But the contracts still have it in this old school way. And so you have to know that schematic design is 15% of uh, the overall. Now you can change it on the contract, but it's built in, unless you change it, it's gonna say 15%. So 15% of 100,000 is gonna be 15,000, and we have $25 an hour. Uh, and so total uh, hours at $25 an hour, uh, we could just divide 25 into 15, which I believe gets us B, 600. The trouble with that is that's actually not the number you really care about. You, the, the $25 that you're paying per hour is only a part of the overall billable cost. What about what it costs for their portion of the insurance and their portion of the rent and their portion of the lights and their portion of the uh, uh, computer programs and all of that? Uh, in fact, in general, we're going to use a number. Uh, I'm going to start with three times the dollars per hour, uh, and that's going to be what we're billing at. Um, and in fact... Different places around the country will use slightly different numbers. Three, three and a half, four, I've seen it up to five, but three, three and a half, four, right in that range is sort of the, the sort of sweet spot for this. Um, so if, you're, if you ever see your, uh, uh, your billable hour rate, you'll note like maybe you're being billed at uh, $100. Well, you're probably not getting paid $100. You're probably getting paid $30 an hour, something like that, but your billable rate is $100. This is what we're talking about. That's how many, that's how you have to figure out how many hours you have. So let's start with three. And so it would be three times 25, which is going to be $75 an hour. Uh, we divide that into 15,000 and I believe we get 200 uh, hours. And so the closest one that answers all of the issues we need is 180, which would put the uh, hourly at uh, the, the rate at about 3.25 or so, um, which is actually low-ish but workable. So the answer here would be D. And the whole point is that you understand how all of these things all fit together. Okay, number six. The architect has just finished a new affordable housing multifamily project. It is the first project they have done with a new team of engineering consultants. There is a distinct possibility that there could be more projects in the pipeline with this developer. It would be wise to do which of the following with the new team. Choose three again. Uh, so the answers here are going to be the ones like what are going to be the ways that we can see what went well, what didn't go well, and what we can make better for the next round? How can we sharpen it up so we use our recent experience as a team to uh, tell us about the future uh, projects that we're going to go forward with? Because we want to be able to not only resubmit with this developer and say, yes, you know, hire us again, but we want to say, and not only hire us again, but we learned a couple of lessons about how this project could go better uh, so that they know that we're on it and we're kind of uh, finding the best possible way uh, to, to make these projects work. So the first one is going to be uh, review the quality assurance plan. Now, 
a lot of firms don't actually have a quality assurance plan, but you should. And this is one of those things, NCARB and AIA are going to always say, you should have a written plan for how you assure quality on your projects. So uh, what does that mean? It means you've just got a sort of checklist, like, uh, uh, you know, did we make sure that, you know, did we review uh, the code compliance? Did we review the egress? Did we review the budgeting? Did we review, you know, like, did we go through it? Does it play out the way that it's supposed to? Does the program that was originally written at the beginning of the project actually still function now at the end of the project? And if it doesn't, there are other reasons why it doesn't. So like, it's okay if things have moved on, but you want to make sure they haven't slipped on or crept on in a way that's not meant to be. So quality assurance is having a plan for how you review all of those things and really checking, uh, checking the work before it goes out so you find any mistakes or problems before it starts going to permit or to all of that. Uh, uh, you're talking about a team here. So you've got a bunch of consultants. Well, a huge part of any situation, especially for NCARB, the way they think about things, is going to be the communication. And this is, I can say, uh, myself as well. Uh, every time we have a new set of uh, team people, uh, it's always about finding a communication system that works. So C is going to be another, uh, another big one. Um, a, reviewing the payout system. Uh, payout just means that during construction, there's a certain process of how the contractors get paid. That doesn't really have anything to do with this question, it's not a bad thing to know about or have opinions on, but it's just not a reasonable answer. Uh, sign new contracts, but you know, of course you're going to sign new, new contracts. That's not really, uh, you know, if you're doing a new project, you're going to have new contracts. Uh, it's, not, it's not really what the question is about. Uh, reviewing engineering options, you don't have the project yet, so you don't even really know from the client exactly what that would be, so that's not really possible. So the third answer here is have a third party review the work quality. Uh, now, third party is in quotes because sometimes that means third party like inside the office. So like maybe you've been working on projects with uh, three or four other people and then there's somebody who works on a different kind of project will take the set for, you know, uh, uh, three days and just go through everything and see if it makes sense and find help find mistakes. And the point of that is a different set of eyes, a new fresh set of eyes looks at it. Or it might be an outside party that we actually pay an architect or uh, uh, estimator or uh, uh, engineer to take the drawings and review through all the, all the drawings and just have a this different set of eyes, have a knowledge base that's a different knowledge base to make sure that our, we're meeting the quality that we think we are by getting these sort of multiple views. Uh, the NCARB questions are big fans communication, big fans of third-party reviews, and big fans of assurance, quality assurance plans. Those are bound to come up somewhere, so you should really have a feel for those. Beautiful. Um, so thank you, Mike. Um, maybe two questions here. Um, one, Andre asked a question. He said he read somewhere that uh, the cost of work, cost of work plus fee can also be used as a fast track. Um, wanted some clarification there. <clears throat> the cost of work plus fee cannot, well, um, fast track is, uh, here's, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, what I'm going to say is forget about that. And while it's true, the, the fast track is so specific. Like what they're really talking about is that you're doing cost plus fee for each separate 
category. So I've got the foundation and excavation work. That's one, they refer to them as packages. And so these are very tight packages that there's very little time uh, because the contractors are just literally standing around waiting for you to finish these things. So you kind of crank through them and you do these cost plus fees for that, but it's not an overarching cost plus fee for the whole thing. You do it per package, typically. Fast Track's done a bunch of different ways, but typically you do it per package. In fact, conceptually, you could have different architects as well as different contractors actually doing each of the packages. Okay, great. Um, and then a couple of questions, still a little heartburn about contract documents and instruments of service. Yeah. So the question is, um, can you maybe reiterate again why instruments of service are not part of the contract documents? No, instruments of service are. Uh, instruments of service is, um, sorry if I wasn't clear on that. Uh, the this is sort of the big category, the, the initial category is things that are not billable. So marketing, like you can't bill to somebody the fact that you're marketing to somebody else. Like you know, that just doesn't make any sense. That's stuff you're doing uh, for the off, for the practice, but not for a particular client. Uh, other kinds of administration, buying computers, things like that. That's all stuff you're doing for the, the practice itself. And then mo essentially everything else is the instruments of service. And everything else is the instruments of service, and you might have the instruments of service for your one big client, and then you might have three smaller clients. You have instruments of service for each of those. Um, and the thinking is that, all right, so uh, Jane is working on a project. Uh, she's probably billing those hours to that project. Anything she does, whether it's actually the contract document or not, like, it doesn't have to be the final drawing. She's still billing her time to that project. So that work is part of the instruments of service. And the reason this is important, I mean, there's a bunch of reasons, but the one of the key reasons this is important is that let's say the project's rolling along, and then for whatever reason, there's a falling out, say, between the architect and the owner, or the owner loses funding and everything stops, right? They actually have rights to the instruments of service, not just the contract documents. So if you've produced five sketches of different parking lot layouts uh, and you know four of them didn't make it into the schematic design, technically they could ask for, could we see all of your, your potential layouts because we're moving on to a different architect, <coughs> excuse me, or we're not sure how the project's gonna proceed or whatever but we want to see all the work that you did because we now may want to use it later, right? So they actually have rights to all of the instruments of service. <coughs> Excuse me. But a subset of that is the contract documents. And that subset is the actual final bunch of stuff that becomes the contract between the owner and the GC. So, of all the work you do that's billable, it's probably, you know, 40, 30, 40 percent of, of that uh, of that direct time actually goes into that specific uh, sort of category. And it's a, it's the important one, right? It's the thing that's going to be handed over to the contractors. It's what's going to get you a permit. It's uh, it's the thing that. <coughs> sorry. Um, it's the thing that actually is going to be the documents that 
produce the actual work. So it's the hugely important part, but it's only one part of the instruments of service. All those memos, all those meeting notes, all that stuff is all part of the instruments of service. Only the drawings and project manual and addendas and then change orders and stuff like that is part of the contract documents. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. All right, guys. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in here. So uh, at our next ARI Live uh, podcast, we'll be discussing project management. Um, we're posting the link uh, just now uh, in the chat box uh, in the GoToWebinar control panel. So just go down to where it says chat and link is there. Uh, or you can go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast or register to attend. Uh, to learn more about our ARI exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com uh, where you can try out any of our free course videos and if you want your boss to pay for your firm membership, be sure to, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of any size. And who wouldn't want their boss to pay for their membership? I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't get it. What a good idea. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the area right now and you think there is no chance your boss is ever going to pay for this, um, you can use coupon code PCM73019PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, tomorrow we'll send you an e everyone an email follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think. Share any suggestions that you may have. Uh, we do read everything that you guys send and use that to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.